Greetings and a warm welcome to the Bible Teachers. We recently aired the testimony of D. Casper on By the Word of Their Testimony. D's testimony, which was followed by the first of a two-part presentation by D on how to overcome the devil, was broadcast on the previous program of the Bible Teachers. Today we are broadcasting part two of How to Overcome the Devil, which clearly presents the power of the gospel. Today looks at the mystery of the cross. And to understand what actually happened at the cross, we need the revelation of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To present this to the world is the gospel which will draw all mankind to Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. When the Jews asked Jesus who he was, he answered them and said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Jesus said the lifting up of the Son of Man would demonstrate who he was. Jesus' death on the cross was much more than a martyr's death. Let's join D. Casper as he unpacks a deeper understanding of the gospel and the mystery of the cross in part two of How to Overcome the Devil. Our theme text again for the weekend is found in Revelation chapter 12. It's quite fitting for our movement. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. And the text and things should be on the screen as well for time's sake. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Again, this is in direct response to the event at Calvary. And they, the saints, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And seeing the power of the cross transform their lives and grant them new identities, they no longer want to cling to the life they had before because they found something better. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth." And the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Satan, or the accuser of the brethren, has specialized in attacking us at the identity level, in confusing us regarding our identities. And we closed last night by mentioning that Christ's perfect life, sufferings, death, and resurrection provide us that new identity. And we saw that happen in the life of a dear friend of mine. But the question is, how does that work? And what did my friend hear that brought this into his life? The same thing that cast Satan down, an encounter with the cross. Jesus overcame the devil to enable you to do the same. This is why Christ overcame, to empower humanity to rise above the attacks of Satan. And I want to give two brief quotes here from the 1888 materials that were helpful to me to understand the importance of lifting up the cross before the people. This is the first quote. The preaching of Christ crucified has been strangely neglected by our people. Many who claim to believe the truth have no knowledge of faith in Christ by experience. It is this neglected part of the ministry which will be found the great instrument in the conversion of souls and in leading to the high standard of holiness which every church needs in order to become a living church. There must be a life-giving power in the ministry. Life must be infused into the missionaries in every place that they may go forth giving the trumpet no uncertain sound but with heaven-sent awakening power. 
such as can be found only in the preaching of Jesus Christ, His love, His forgiveness, His grace. And this is the second quote that was the perfect answer for this friend of mine. The want in the religious experience, what's lacking and what we desire, is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as presented in the gospel. <coughs> a sobering story. I was teaching at a school of evangelism a couple years ago. I taught in the morning, someone else taught in the afternoon. But the class they were teaching was on Calvary, on the cross. And I thought, well, I'd love to hear this. So I stick around, and this individual didn't grow up in church, didn't grow up a Seventh-day Adventist. They were converted. They, they were an atheist, basically, growing up. But as this young person, God, by the, the power of the gospel and the undying love of Jesus, this person became a follower of God. They became a Christian. And soon into their conversion, they were going door to door. And I don't know if they were selling literature or handing out literature. I forget. But that's not the main point. They get to this door, they knock on the door, and they say, hey, I've got this book for you, man. And the guy says, come inside. So he comes inside. Says, so what's the deal, man? He says, I've got this book, and it talks about the fact that Jesus died for you. And the guy says, and? What do you mean, and? Jesus died for you, man. And the guy's response is, so what? So what? And he says, sit down. Let me tell you a story. And this man begins to tell this young Christian a story about his guru. He was an Eastern religionist of some sort. Wanted to tell him a story about his guru. The views that the guru had about religion and the views of the people in his village were vastly different. The people hated him for this. And eventually what they did was something that I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because there were children present. And I just don't think it, it would be wise to do so. But they began to chain a man to a tree and inflict severe amounts of harm upon his body and did it in such a way that his death would take days to accomplish. Continue to prolong this torturous, awful experience. Animals are investigating him all along the way. And this guy is weeping as he's telling this story to this young Christian. And he says, what my guru went through was way worse than what your Jesus went through. So why should I put my faith in him? And this young Christian doesn't know what to say. They didn't tell him this answer in the Bible studies. They didn't give him any supply to answer this. And he's just sitting there feeling completely lost, really, and knowing what to do. And the only thing he can muster to say is, So do you still want the book? <laughs> he doesn't know what else to do. And the question that this person, who's now a converted minister of the gospel and is teaching at the School of Evangelism, the question that he raised to the attendees of the School of Evangelism was, if it's just a matter of how painful his death was, what makes the death of Jesus any more meritorious than the death of Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., or anyone who died for the good of humanity? What makes Jesus' death any better? Now, I'm not questioning the death of Jesus today. Please don't misunderstand me. But it's a fair question, because we are evangelists, we are people who should be sharing the gospel with people, but what gospel is it then that we need to be sharing? What if, what if people have suffered worse than Jesus? Why is Jesus' death any better than theirs? That's the question. Well, we get some answers. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. I've covered this here before, even about a year ago. But 
It seems to me with the language that Jesus is employing here that if A happens, then B is going to happen. Are you left with that impression to some degree? So when this gospel, and he's very specific, whatever gospel that he's preaching and that he's talking about and that he endorses, when that's preached and all the world is a witness, then Jesus will come. Well, I have a very simple question for you this morning. Where's Jesus? Jesus isn't here yet. There's something that Jesus is needing from us, is the impression that I'm left with. I don't think that as Jesus is lacking a desire to come, I believe that Jesus is waiting on the correct impetus to bring that coming. Revelation chapter 14 says that the everlasting gospel is going to go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Very similar language. It's the last thing to happen, this message of mercy to go before the world. Revelation 18 is a repetition of the third angel's message. Well, Ellen White gives us some insight. She says that the message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven is the everlasting gospel. And she gives us some insight into it. She says, it's the same gospel that was declared in Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So the gospel that Jesus is talking about and the gospel is preached at the end of time is the same gospel that was preached in the garden. So in Eden, his heel will be bruised. Also in Eden, tunics of skin are required. Something has to die. Something has to suffer to in turn clothe the people of their shame and their nakedness because iniquity has made its way into their experience. In the sanctuary service, we're told that a lamb is going to be slain, which is obviously telling us what will happen to Jesus. The prophets say that a Messiah is going to suffer. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. And the disciples don't like this at all. They hate this idea. We don't want, you know, this guy who's just going to suffer for people. Like, it doesn't sound near as spicy as, as taking back the land from the Romans. And they just don't seem to understand or want it. After Jesus dies and is resurrected, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And he tells these people, he says, didn't you know that the Christ had to suffer? And then the apostles in the book of Acts never believe it. You know what they have to say? That he did suffer. Jesus will suffer. This is what we're going to have to bring before the people. Now, how often do we hear messages that highlight the sufferings of Christ? And I want to make it clear here, I'm not talking about a Mel Gibson bloodbath. But there are genuine, real sufferings. There's agony that Christ went through before anyone laid a hand on him. That far surpasses what any martyr has ever gone through on behalf of humanity. And it gives us some insights. I've only heard this gospel preached once in my life. July 4th, 5th, 2014, and I'll never forget it. It was life-changing for me. It was, this, it was the purest gospel sermon I had ever heard. Someone just told the story of Gethsemane through the cross. Now, am I saying that no one's preaching it? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I didn't come across hearing it until then. Obviously, some people must be preaching it. But... I've met two other people who heard that same person preach that sermon 20 years ago. One of them was in Thatcher Hall at Southern Adventist University like 20 years ago. And they still remember it vividly. They've never forgotten it. Met another person who was a young convert and eventually became a pastor who heard the same person preach this sermon. And they've never forgotten it. Something about hearing the true power of the cross sears into your mind and you can't ever get rid of it. That's what happened to my friend that we talked about last night. That's what radically transformed his experience. And we wonder why our older and younger generation are wrestling with assurance of salvation. 
I wonder if this could be the answer to that. We're not hearing the full depths of the beauty of the gospel. Here it is. Jesus risked the eternal existence and fellowship of the Godhead to see you saved. Jesus was willing to take an exponentially large risk because something about you was valuable enough to him to take that risk. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, this is super significant, especially in the context of shame versus guilt that we talked about last night, because shame is, is identifying someone with what they've done. Guilt is something to remind them that they have guilt to point them to Jesus. There's two different approaches here. Well, if Jesus became sin, that means that Jesus also became your shame. He bore your shame. He bore that. He identified with the things that you have done so you don't have to anymore. So that you could be seen as the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus did not write a check for the price of sin. He literally became sin and received the wrath of God towards sin to set you free. This is what the gospel is meant to tell us. And we'll skip this. Now, imagine with me that you're standing before a holy God and a holy law for just one of your sins and no mediator. That there's no one to stand between you and the Father and this holy law. It's just you. And I'm only talking about one of your sins. And I'm left with the impression that you've probably committed a few more than one like I have. Am Am I right in that assumption? Okay. But imagine you just have to have one of them. But for a holy God and a holy law, what emotions, what thoughts are going through your mind in that moment? I need to hear a response from you tonight, this morning. What, what thoughts go through your mind? How would you be feeling? Verbal feedback, what do we have? Scared, hopeless. Anyone else? Terrified, shameful. Imagine that instead of you bearing one of your sins before the Father with no mediator in your behalf, which praise God for the fact that we do have a mediator, but I want you to imagine the composite guilt, shame, condemnation, the unmingled wrath of Almighty God in just a large pile. Like, you just, you take all of it. From the, from the first sin of Adam and Eve all the way until the second coming of Jesus Christ, the amassed amount of sin, the shame, the condemnation, the punishment... The unmingled wrath of God and that inward shameful pointing of the finger heaped upon the shoulders of one man at one point in time. This is why Jesus tells the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even to death. You would be horrified. It would most likely drop dead from horror For your one sin standing before the Father, and yet Jesus is carrying a superhuman amount of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells the disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. He collapses to the ground twice, we're told in the book Desire of Ages in the Gethsemane chapter, that the moment that he sets foot in the garden, he collapses to the ground from the weight that has been placed upon his shoulders. The disciples help him up and it eventually happens again. 
The psychological agony that Jesus is enduring here is so taxing, is so difficult, that it's having a physiological effect upon his body, and he's now bleeding through his pores. The disciples have never seen a Jesus like this. Jesus is always calm, cool, and collected all the time. Two naked demoniacs running at him full steam, and he stands like a rock, rebukes the demons, and it says they're seated and clothed in their right minds. A demoniac stands up in the middle of a church service and says, What have we to do with you, Jesus? It would send shivers down your spine, and yet Jesus is unfazed and deals with matters and continues. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8, I believe, is on a boat with waves coming all over the boat, and he's sleeping. He's at peace in the boat while the disciples are losing their minds. Jesus is always calm, cool, and collected, but as soon as they set foot in the garden, they're looking in the eyes of a man that they've never seen before. They have never seen Jesus distraught and distressed in the way that they're seeing him right now. Jesus is agonizing in this garden. You and I, under the same circumstances, could check out emotionally and psychologically. We have this hardware built within us that when things get too difficult, we just turn into vegetables. We just check out and we just, we just flatline intellectually, right? We just get numb. You get the thousand-yard stare and you can check out. But the problem is Jesus isn't afforded that option. Jesus has to continue in this agony and in this pain. And he suffers and he suffers alone. Of the people, there were no men with him. And she says this line that is just heartbreaking in Desire of Ages, that in this moment, Jesus is longing for human sympathy and for affection. Jesus, God, longing for human sympathy and affection. And you know what he gets in that moment? He gets nothing. He gets absolutely nothing. His disciples are asleep, and he wrestles and agonizes alone. And then comes this voice of sophistry to Jesus. The devil starts whispering in his ear and says, Hey, Jesus, these people do not appreciate you. Where are your disciples right now, Jesus? Now, where are his disciples? They're sleeping. Certainly, James, John, and Peter, they'll be there for Jesus. That's why he brought them further into the recesses of the garden. But where are they when he needs them? They're sleeping. Jesus, these people do not appreciate you. They do not value you. You're wasting your time, man. Just walk. Now, could Jesus walk? 100%. He could. Something about you gives Jesus the intrinsic motivation to continue. Jesus has three prayers in the midst of this agony, praying for God to change his mind. He's begging for an alternative. He's begging for another option. He says, Father, please let this cup pass from me. And the cup that Jesus is referring to is the same cup that the wicked are going to drink at the end of time, found in Revelation chapter 14. It's the cup of God's unmingled wrath. This is the chalice that Jesus is wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane. The unmingled wrath of God is beginning to be poured out upon God. But in these prayers, you come to Jesus' mind 
And that's where he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's thinking of you. When he says, nevertheless, he has you in mind. And she has this powerful line in Desire of Ages. His decision is made, and he will save man at any cost to himself. Hmm. And then she says something that I had forgotten about, but read again this morning. God suffered with his son. There was silence in heaven in this moment. And could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic hosts as in silent grief they watched the Father separating his beams of light, love, and glory from his beloved Son, they would better understand how offensive in his sight is sin. God the Father suffered with Jesus in the garden. And then there's this touching scene continuing in Desire of Ages where God literally sends the angel from the right hand of the Father down to planet Earth. And this is alluded to in Luke's account. And the way that she explains it in the Desire of Ages, this angel literally cradles the head of Jesus in his bosom and speaks tender words of encouragement to Jesus to remind him of the promises of the Father that he's always been with him. Do you remember at the baptism, Jesus, that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, that this is my son? Listen to him. I know it's dark, Jesus, but he's here. He's here. God gives us a picture. Who says that we have to receive this picture? But this is one of the beautiful things that we get from the spirit of prophecy, is we get an understanding of even more details that happened that can bring great encouragement to our soul, because that leaves me with the impression that when I'm hurting, when I'm going through my own equivalent, which certainly is nothing like what he went through, but through my own Gethsemane experiences, there's a God in heaven who cares and who's willing to deploy angels to meet my every need. We're told the same thing happened to John the Baptist in that lonely prison cell when he's wrestling with the deafening silence of God. The same thing is ensured for us. And we're told that Jesus, without having a single hand laid upon him, would have died in the garden were it not for this angel being sent to strengthen Jesus, to go on. To do for Jesus what we did not do for him. So Jesus awakens the disciples, he heads down to the entrance, and there's a mob there with implements that I assure you have nothing to do with what they're going to need for Jesus. And he's greeted by Judas and is betrayed by a kiss. And then words come out of Jesus' mouth that are mind-boggling to me. He calls Judas friend. Friend, there's a self-sacrificing love in the heart of Jesus that knows no bounds. He's brought before a sham of a trial where the word justice isn't even invited to the conversation. Isaiah 52 tells us that he was beaten beyond the point of recognition, and I'll stop there. You can't even recognize who this man is anymore, we're told. And then he's brought before the Jews. And you know what they have to say? We will not have this man as Lord over us. The very people Jesus came to save. 
We have no king but Caesar. Give us Barabbas. The very people that Jesus comes to save, to pour out his life to the dregs, and their response to him is, we have no king but Caesar. We do not want this man as Lord over us. Give us Barabbas. And later they say, his blood be on us and on our children. Oh my, I can't imagine what they're going to think when the tables turn in the special resurrection. But before we're too hard on the Jews... We need to realize that each time that we choose our choice sins over Jesus, we're saying the same thing. I will not have this man as Lord over me. Give me Barabbas. We say the same thing, guys. We're no better than them. All of us, were it not for the grace of God, deserve to die because of our sins. But God loves you with an everlasting love and does not want this for you. This is why he endured what he did. He's brought to the cross. They nail him to this implement of demonic torture. They slam it into the hole in the ground. And every nerve and muscle and sinew of his body is yanked downwards. Fire runs through every nerve of his body. And then she has this strange line where she says that his physical pain was hardly felt in comparison with the emotional and psychological and spiritual agony that he's contending with. And while he's on the cross, he's told that if you are the Son of God, save yourself. Someone who's crucified beside Jesus says, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. Irony of ironies is because Jesus is the Son of God that he's not coming down from that cross. And he's already saving them. They just haven't figured it out yet. And this voice of sophistry returns. Jesus, you are wasting your time. Look at these people. They don't care about you. They don't value you. You're wasting your time. And again, Jesus can walk, but yet he continues. And if this isn't awful enough... The only constant that Jesus has had for 33 and a half years of his life is the presence and the approval of his Father. And now that's gone. We're told in Desire of Ages that Satan has heaped an impenetrable cloud of darkness upon Jesus. But we're also told in Desire of Ages one of the most amazing things ever penned by a mortal. That the reason why it looks like midnight at noonday on Golgotha's hill is because God Almighty is on earth. He's beside Jesus at the cross. And it's an act of mercy from God. Because had these people seen him, they would have been struck dead. And yet even in this moment, God's love for these people is so present that he shrouds his presence for their sakes so that even they can be saved. There's one thing that keeps Jesus nailed to this cross. There's one thing that keeps Jesus going through all this agony. You know what that is? It's you. It's you. Jesus cannot stand the thought of losing you. He can't, can't even fathom that. And he would rather cease to exist than allow for that to be an option. And then we're told that he cannot see through the portals of the tomb, according to the desire of ages. 
Jesus is fully convinced in his mind at this stage that he will never see the light of day again. He will never see the Father again. And that even if you are saved and this plan of salvation does work, he's not going to be there to see it. And yet Jesus continues. This will mean the cessation of my eternal existence, and I'll continue. I'll do it, he says. This is why it says in John 13, verse 1, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the utter end of himself. And then there's this powerful scene in Desire of Ages where Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, the angels erupt in praise. They lose their minds. And Jesus looks at them and says, no. No. And he presses into the presence of the Father, and he has to know, was it enough? He will not accept their worship until he has a final answer. Was it enough? Did we achieve a victory for our children? And the Father gives him the most powerful yes you could ever imagine, I'm sure. And then heaven loses its mind. The angels then do erupt in praise. Jesus does accept their worship. And this is why it says in Revelation chapter 12 that the heavens should rejoice and woe to the earth because it is finished. Jesus overcame the devil and has made a way for you and I to receive the fruit of that victory. There's good news for us today. What Jesus went through was hell on earth to the most literal extent. But there's good news for you today because Jesus succeeded to enable you to succeed. You are being told with the loudest language possible today that you are accepted, that you are valued by God. This is why it says in Jeremiah 31 that the Lord has appeared to me of old saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. He says in John 12 that I, if I am lifted from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus pours out his life to the dregs knowing that you can walk. Knowing that. But it says in Isaiah 42 and verse 4 that he will not fail nor be discouraged in his pursuit of your soul. Jesus is a persistent, relentless, pursuing lover. He will not stop loving you, young people, until you breathe your last breath. And even then, he will miss you for eternity. Jesus' pain never ends. God the Father's pain never ends. The righteous eventually, he says, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. But the great controversy does not end for them. You know why? Because there are casualties. Revelation chapter 12 is a domestic dispute. It's a family affair, and God is losing created beings and human beings that he never meant to be lost. And that pain remains for him. This is the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the weight that he places on you individually. And this is the message that has to go to our world if we're going home in our lifetime. This is the message that Jesus preached, that the Old Testament foretold of, and that the New Testament church fell in love with. And it does something. It does something to the human psyche. This is why it says in Romans 2.4 that the goodness of God leads to repentance. That when we come face to face with the true power of the cross, it does something to us. And that's what happened to my friend we talked about last night. 
He saw sin differently. He saw his value differently. He saw himself and God differently. And yet knowing all of what it is that Jesus would be put through at the result of a lot of what we are doing, we're told in Romans 5 and verse 8 that God showed his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You do not just have the love of Jesus this morning. You have the love of God the Father as well. Sometimes we get that confused. We have unhealthy views of God the Father. We, we can roll with Jesus, but the Father is just a mystery to us. We view him almost as like he's this disappointed parent that looks at me in the way that I look at me. But that's not the way that Scripture portrays the character of God the Father. So the question then is, if God can forgive you, and Jesus can forgive you, why is it that we wrestle so strongly with forgiving ourselves? Why is it that we refuse to believe the things about us that God believes? We're told in Isaiah 53 that, you can turn there with me if you'd like to, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. I think I'll probably just summarize actually. But Jesus sees the labor of his soul and it says that he's satisfied because by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. He looks at the price that he's going to have to pay, and he's satisfied. He looks at the price that he is paying while he suffers, he's satisfied. And he looks back upon the price that he paid, and he's still satisfied. You're justified, and he's satisfied. I'm going to skip the... Ah, no, I won't. I changed my mind. After I changed my mind. By the way, I was 28 whenever my mom and I had reconciliation. I did the math last night. I was 28 years old. But this is a message uh, from Ellen White to someone who is just sure of the fact that they could not be saved, which she wrestled with, by the way, as well. If you read the first volume of the testimonies, the first few chapters in her story, she wrestled with assurance of salvation. But look what she says. She says, The Lord has given me a message for you, and not for you only, but also for other faithful souls who are troubled by doubts and fears regarding their acceptance by the Lord Jesus Christ. His word to you is... Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. You desire to please the Lord, and you can do this by believing his promises. You can please God by believing the things he says about you. He's waiting to take you into a harbor of gracious experience, and he bids you be still and know that I am God. You've had a time of unrest, but Jesus says to you, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. The joy of Christ in the soul is worth everything, and then are they glad because they are privileged to rest in the arms of everlasting love. Your justification is not based upon what you do. It's based solely upon what someone else has already done, and it's received by faith. The gospel is not a license to sin, nor is it a means by which we bring ourselves into God's favor by our works. It's neither. But it's contact with God's amazing love that awakens faith in the human heart that will accept Christ as their righteousness and as their means of salvation. The only way that someone's going to be willing to come to God is if they're left with the impression that God is coming for them. So the picture that we portray to people and how we teach and how we mentor and how we raise our children and so on, this directly affects their ability to view God the Father in a healthy, inviting way. But if we uplift the cross of Christ, it's the clearest language possible that God is saying that I want you, every one of you individually, 
I'm not just corporately accepting you. I'm saying that individually, each person on this front row, you are accepted in the beloved because of Jesus. Now, what happens when I say yes to Jesus? We're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Him, in Jesus, you also trusted. This is 13 and 14, but it's on the board. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. When people hear the true gospel and are invited to make a decision for Jesus, they trust in Jesus. When that happens, He says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Now, this is not saying once saved, always saved, but what it is saying is if you continue to walk in this decision, the Holy Spirit, from when you say yes to Jesus until Jesus comes to take us home, in that intervening time while we walk in this decision, the Holy Spirit is testifying before God the Father and in heaven that this is a child of God. Heaven is their home. This is the first thing that the Holy Spirit is doing for humanity. So you heard the gospel, you believed and trusted in Jesus, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit who acts as this guarantee until the second coming. And we've already dealt with a big disclaimer. If you walk away from this decision, the process starts all over again, right? You can come back, but the process starts all over again. But Paul continues in Romans chapter 8, this is kind of the next phase. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Hosea refers to it this way. No longer will you refer to me as my master, but you will now refer to me as my husband. Your view and your relationship and your access to intimacy is way different than what you thought it was. You don't receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then it gets gooder. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Not that we will be children of God later. We, in that moment of accepting Jesus, are, current tense, children of God. You are children of God when you say yes to Him. So when we say yes to Jesus, He confirms that heaven is your home, that we're adopted in the family of God, and that we become children of God. But I don't know how many people there are in this room who've gone through the process of adoption, but, and we're also given a new identity in Christ, right? When you become a child of God, you're given a new identity, which is what Satan is trying to deprive you of. But when someone is adopted into a new family, how much do they know about the expectations of the family and how to walk in those expectations? You don't know much of anything. You're new to this home, right? So this is a beautiful thing. The second phase is, the third phase, really, the Holy Spirit. The first is to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment in John chapter 16. That when we're outside of God, He's still pursuing us to remind us that we need God. Then when we say yes to Jesus, He testifies that heaven is your home, that you are a child of God. But He continues, because we don't know how to live like a child of God. We have sinful flesh. We don't know what to do. And this is the powerful, awesome third aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He teaches you how to live like a child of God. We're told in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, and this is powerful. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, he says, For what the law could not do, which is save us, in that it was weak through the flesh, because our sinful flesh can't keep the law by itself. So for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, what does it say next? God did. 
What you could not do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in flesh like ours. And on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus overcame sin in the flesh, which is powerful. So I want to stop and take a brief break here. The life of Jesus is equally important to my salvation and sanctification as the death of Jesus. And this is where when we preach the gospel, we don't give people all of the good news. Because yes, Jesus did die for you, but what Jesus' death does is cancel out the debt that you have. Because we're told that the wages of sin is death. They did a great job in Sabbath school on covering this this morning, didn't they? So the wages of sin is death. And I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but you know what a wage is? It's what you deserve as a result of the works that you perform. The wages, what we deserve as a result of our works is death, we're told in Scripture. So Jesus' death cancels out the death that I deserve. But the problem is, I now need to go the rest of my life without sinning in word, thought, or deed if heaven is going to be my home. So the death of Jesus, if that's all we had, I would have no hope of having a transformed life through the power of the gospel. I wouldn't be able to overcome. I wouldn't be able to deal with the battles and the brokenness that I have. I need access to a life that I have not lived. And that is given to me through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're told in Scripture. And it continues because, again, Jesus overcame sin in the flesh, and here's why. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is not one of those do better, work harder messages. We have a severe inadequacy as a human race. A severe deficit and inadequacy. And our only hope of having that overcome is through someone doing in us and through us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You understanding me this morning? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is meant to do that. God loves you so much that He not only came to cancel out your debt, He came to give you power to ensure that you can be in heaven. Now, who says God has to do that? He could literally put a sign on the wall that says, no lifeguard on duty, swim at your own risk. God could do that, but he doesn't. God is willing to take this extra step for humanity. He came in sinful flesh and lived a victorious life, which our flesh failed to do. And he did it by continually abiding in his father, by the continual yielding of his will or his power of choice to his father. He says in John 5, 20, that I can of myself do nothing. So according to Romans 8, he did this so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in your life and by the power of his spirit living in you. By the way, those contrasts of the two ministries of the death and life of Jesus are found in Romans 5. I'll read this very briefly. They covered it actually in Sabbath school. They read the verses. But to give a biblical framework for what I'm saying here, Romans chapter 5, and it's close to verse 10. Yes, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, that clears our debt, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by what? By His life. We should be saved by His life. That's Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Paul continues in Romans 8 and says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And this is all in direct response to the question Paul had in Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body, this fleshly body of death? I don't stand a chance, man. The answer is Romans 8. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is an enmity. It's an enmity against God. 
For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is not a matter of you, with your soul, human strength, mustering something to please God. The way that we please God, Ellen White was saying earlier, was by believing His promises. Well, here's some promises from God coming up here in Hebrews chapter 10. According to this text, there are two directions for the human mind. And every human being's mind is autopilot stuck on the flesh until we believe the gospel and receive the Spirit. And when we believe the gospel and receive the Spirit, He changes our minds from being set on the flesh to the Spirit. Right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That comes by believing the gospel. You begin to think differently and you view sin differently, as we talked about with my friend last night. So if your mind is set in the flesh, you're an enemy of God, you're at war with God because you can't obey His law or choose not to by living your own way. But if your mind is set on the Spirit, you have life in peace. Why? Because the law is being fulfilled in your life. That's basically what Paul is saying. This is vindicated in Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they that love thy law. You can't love the law unless God is living inside of you. Our flesh hates it. And they have no occasion of stumbling. So here's some of those promises that we're told that God would love for us to believe. Hebrews 10, 16 to 17 says this. It's quoting from Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament of the New Covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God teaches us how to live like a child of God by writing His law in our hearts and upon our minds, and He has no intention of remembering our sins, but it gets even better. In Ezekiel 36, He takes the next step forward, and we're about to close. In Ezekiel chapter 36, He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, beginning in verse 25, again it's on the board. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. We as a race are in desperate need of help. We can't get out of this mess on our own. God sends rescue from heaven here in Ezekiel 36, beginning of verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. The result of God living in you is a transformed life. So when God writes His law in your heart and in your mind, He isn't meaning it just for a memorial, just as a plaque to hang in the walls of your mind. He's saying that He will empower you to live in harmony with that law, and it will become a part of you. His Spirit will cause you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Uh, that's what it says in Philippians 2.13. So Ezekiel 36 is God's extravagant provision and His amazing desire to see you saved. You're dirty? I'll cleanse you, He says. You got idols? I can get rid of them. You have a stony heart? I'll give you a new one. You're cold and indifferent? I'll give you the ability to feel again by giving you a new and warm heart. And you can't obey? I'll empower you to obey. This is the amazing promise of righteousness by faith, of what God longs to do for the wretched humanity that is lost and is in desperate need of Jesus. That's what he thinks. And we can please God, we're told, if we believe his promises. So it should be clear to you then that God wants you in heaven. Is that clear today? I hope if, if I've messed up everything and have made a fool of myself for 45 minutes and 50 seconds, that you at least know that much. That there's a God in heaven that wants you, and He wants you there. Jesus says that in John 17, I wish that they might be with me where I am. 
Jesus desperately wants you in heaven. He loves you, he desires your good, and he's willing to do the heavy lifting to transform your life. Remember I talked about last night that we set our people up, our members up for failure. If we spend most of our capital in telling people what God expects at the expense of how God empowers you to do what he expects. And the two responses to messages like that are, one, I'm a loser, I'm never going to be good enough and should throw in the towel, or two, that God is unreasonable. But this message, this promise in Ezekiel 36, Hebrews 10, Jeremiah 31, Romans 8, Romans 5, is telling us that God is not unreasonable. He kind of is, because he's breaking his neck to see you saved when no one says that he has to. So if God is unreasonable, he's unreasonable on that side of the aisle. But he's not unreasonable by not being willing to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Yeah? What was the word that Cameron used earlier? Crazy love? Yeah, he has an exorbitant amount of love. So the question then is, is this your desire? Is it your desire to receive the promises that God has for you, to allow God to impart those to you? That is the question. Now, I I need to close with this. There are people in this room who used to be sitting on the front row. There are people in this room who used to be sitting on the front row in some school many years ago, sorry, for some of you, a few years ago, right? All of us are going through transitions in life. And some of us made sincere commitments to God at one stage in our life, and we found ourselves that we're not really there anymore. Life happened, discouragement happened, life looked good, whatever it may be. And I'm also saying this for some of the young people here, that what happens if I fail along the way? Well, I want to quote from a song that's been helpful to me by Andrew Peterson. It's called, uh, I don't even remember what it's called, but it's good. Anyway, here's the lyrics from it. (laughs) All of my life, he says, I've held on to this fear These thistles and vines ensnare and entwine what flowers appear. And in the previous stanza, he talked about how God planted, by breaking his heart, by him falling upon the rock of the cross, that God planted new seeds in his heart. And he says that all of my life I've held on to this fear that these thistles and vines ensnare and entwine what flowers are beginning to appear. And here's his fear. It's the fear that I'll fall one too many times. The fear that God's love is no better than mine. Some of us have that fear today, that we're going to fall too many times, or that God's love is no better than mine, that He's given up on me just like I've given up on me. Some of us have already left. Some of us in this room, statistically, will leave. But I want you to know this morning that His love is better than yours. It is. And that you can come back. If you find yourself in a situation that you've wandered from God, or if later in life you find yourself that you have wandered from God, you're in a place that you never thought that you would be. There are graduates from this academy over the last 20 years who are finding themselves today in a place that they never thought they would be. That their classmates never thought that they would be. There's good news today. You can come back. Andrew Peterson answers his fears in the next stanza where he says this, Just as I am and just as I was, just as I will be, he loves me, he does. 
He showed me the day that he shed his own blood. He loves me. Oh, he loves me. He does. I want to close with Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. It's on the board. I like it because the grammar that's used in Revelation chapter 3, we don't talk about a lot, but it's actually in the continuative in the Greek. Where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In the original language, it's in the continuative. It means that he has been knocking. He is knocking now. And he has no intention of not knocking tomorrow. Just as I am, just as I was, just as I will be, he loves me, he does, Andrew Peterson says. And God says that if anyone hears my voice, notice there's no exclusion because of caste, how much money you have, what life you've lived, what truth you used to have and aren't walking in. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. I assure you today that this is the greatest invitation you will ever receive in your life. And I don't mean because I'm giving it. I mean the invitation of God to be willing to dine with you because you're anyone, just so you know. That is the highest privilege ever given to mortals. And this is what God longs to deliver to each of you. If you found yourself in a situation that you never thought that you would be, you can come back today. So if you would like to give God that opportunity, if you would like to give God an even greater access to your life today, because there's not just one door that God is knocking on. It's not just the front door to your heart. It's the other doors, too. Those doors that lead to places that we're just not really wanting to deal with right now. I got a few of those. How about you? I guess not. It's just me. That's fine. Um, Yeah. He's knocking on those two. And that invitation to anyone still applies to you. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me today. And I'd like to close with a word of prayer. Sweet Jesus, I want to thank you for the fact that you have gone to such extreme effort to see every person in this room saved. And that you love us so much that you're actually willing to do the unthinkable. You're willing to honor my decisions over your own desires. And I just pray that through an encounter with the cross, through an encounter with the beauty of the new covenant, that you would continually knock on the door of our hearts, that you would continually remind us of the fact that this is not home that we have a home, that we were adopted, and that you'd love to see us soon, that you'd love to hear from us. So God, I pray today that you would forgive everyone's sins in this room today and all the families that they represent. I ask that you would cover those sins with the blood of Jesus. And I'm praying that the mighty third person of the Godhead that transforms the life and empowers us to live Christ's life would be brought into our experience. And that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Reminded of the faith I live by 111, that what is justification by faith is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust. And doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, then they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We freely confess that today and ask to receive this precious gift. And we receive it by faith in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you, Dee, for sharing that important and powerful message regarding the sacrifice of Jesus for each one of us on the cross. You know, the Apostle Paul, speaking about the importance of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The same Apostle to the Galatians who had lost sight of the cross of Jesus Christ, he says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Oh, to comprehend and appreciate what Jesus did for us at the cross. I've gleaned some of these thoughts from the Bible Echo. It was written September 15, 1892, and this is, comes from paragraph 2, and I've just put some of my own thoughts into it. It says, While hanging on the cross... Legions of evil angels were all about the Son of God. The holy angels of God were not permitted to break the ranks of the evil angels. At this time, they were not to engage in conflict with the reveling foe. Christ could not see through the portals of the tomb. There was no bright hope presented to him that he could envision himself coming forth from the grave as a triumphant conqueror. He was unable to hope that his sacrifice would be accepted by God the Father. All he could realize during this time of amazing darkness was the heinousness of sin that was laid upon him. In his humanity, Jesus became fully acquainted with the horror of sin and its terrible penalty, which is death and eternal death. He feared that sin was so offensive to the sight of his Father that the separation between them was to be eternal. The temptation to believe that his own father had forever left him caused that fearful cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I pray that you've been blessed today by Dee's presentation. And I pray that God will continue to bless and transform your lives as you consider Christ your Savior every day. Thank you for joining us today on The Bible Teachers. We look forward to catching up with you next time. God bless till then.